trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org. Also by HSLAmmo.com and Pure-Light.com. I've got some lovely links to these sponsors. You can stop by and check them out for yourself or maybe even drop them a note and tell them, hey, thanks for sponsoring this program. You can find those links in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. All right, let's dive right in. We've all heard, or at least we've heard it said, that talk is cheap, right? Some people have probably speculated, myself included. Uh, why do you talk so much, Brian? Why do you just talk? Well, you know, it's it's easier than doing actual work in some ways. But no, actually, in tumultuous times like this, it's extremely important that we don't stop talking. Now, here's, look, I'm not saying, therefore, everything, we should just talk about it and not actually do anything. What I'm saying is we are in a time where uh, it's it's getting more difficult to talk. And I'll give you an example of this. If you have ever uh, found yourself hesitating to say something or uh, wanted to express something or you've seen something that made you go, I should speak up, but you hesitate. Or maybe you just, I better not say anything because this could inflame people. This could get people uh, riled up. I might get canceled. You know, the cancel culture could, could come after me. That's what I'm talking about. We need to keep talking. And it's getting more difficult because, uh, let's face it, the goalposts are being moved constantly and people are telling us that, uh, you know, you, you can't say this, you can't think that. But you know what happens when you stop talking? You stop thinking. I want to share with you this article I found on lourockwell.com. This is from the Bionic Mosquito. And it's a very solid case about how those who want to rule us are doing the best they can to get us to stop talking. Here's how the bionic mosquito puts it. The article says, A couple of days ago, I posted the following comment at uh, Paul Vanderclay's site. Paul Vanderclay said, You know, things are getting tyrannical when there's a law against patience. Don't think, just obey. Okay, okay. He says, I see some tyranny coming down the road here. And the bionic mosquito responds and says, Paul, if that's the criteria, and I think it is appropriate... We're already there. Now listen to this reasoning. To think, we must talk. If we cannot talk, we cannot think. There are many things worth discussing that have been made illegal to do to uh, discuss. And this is just in the legal slash state realm. With the relationship of big business and big tech with the state, uh, there may not be prison involved, but you can be equally shut out of society for saying the wrong thing. Hence, we cannot think because we cannot talk All that's left to do is obey. Does that make sense? Then the bionic mosquito says, uh, Today I came across this essay by Stella Morabito, entitled How Ending Freedom of Expression Gives Up Your Right to a Private Life. 
And there is a link, by the way, in the article to this uh, this essay by Stella Morabito. Morabito offers much more depth to the brief comment that I had offered, and it's worth touching on, says the bionic mosquito. For example, uh, Stella Morabito says, We rarely discuss the deeper purpose of the First Amendment, which is to preserve our right to build families, our right to make friends without state interference, even the right to think our own thoughts. But to think, the bionic mosquito says, we must talk. Stella Morbido says, in short, the First Amendment serves as a shield against social isolation. You are being socially isolated whenever the mass state or big tech regulates your speech so that you can't express an opinion without fear of losing your livelihood. Once again, here, the, the bionic mosquito reaffirms, if we cannot talk, we cannot think. Back to Stella Morabito. She says, thus cut off from open conversation, your ability to even think, to generate new ideas. Consider new ideas from others. Improve those ideas by communicating. Evaporates. We cannot think because we cannot talk. Stella Morabito again. Political philosopher Hannah Arendt noted that all totalitarian systems depend upon cultivating social isolation in people. It's because isolation renders people powerless. So it's no wonder that freedom of expression is always first on the chopping block during and after authoritarian takeovers. I don't know. These are simple insights, but this just makes so much sense to me. And even though I know it may be very tempting, and, and in fact, it, it may seem like, look, the most rational choice for most people right now is to just simply, hey, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to fade into the shadows. I'm going to be a wallflower, not draw any attention to myself. This is the time where we need to be more willing to speak, even though it's dangerous, even though it's unpopular, even though it might come with some significant risk. As Vander Clay said, you know, things are getting tyrannical when there's a law against patience. Don't think, just obey. Okay, okay. I see some tyranny coming down the road here. So in conclusion, the bionic mosquito says, uh, G.K. Chesterton offered this, this thought. Quote, there is a thought that stops thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. <laughs> I love it. Chesterton had, had a lot of wisdom to, to start with, but isn't that fascinating? And, and this is not to tell you, you've got to go out there and you've got to be a rabble rouser and you've got to cause trouble. And if you're not, you know, stirring people up, if people aren't angry and yelling and shouting back at you, well, you're not doing your job. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm just suggesting that uh, the reason we need to keep talking comes back to we can't think, we can't reason, we can't persuade other people to think if we're not willing to talk. So what does this have to do with you and me? Okay, I'm doing what I'm doing the best I can, and this is on a daily basis. I speak the truth as best I understand it because I believe in the long term these things matter. There there may be more productive uh, work pursuits that I could do. But I feel uh, I don't know, I I would call it a, a calling to speak truth. And I'm guessing if you're listening to this broadcast, you probably feel it at some level, too. Now, you may not want to start your own broadcast or podcast. You may not even want to start a blog. But I'm trying to persuade you that what we need right now 
on a, on a much larger scale are individuals who are willing to speak the truth, even if their voice shakes. Because there are definitely people who are trying to isolate us socially. And I think the, the idea that, uh, you know, the mass state or big tech is trying to regulate our speech, trying to, you know, persuade us, you can't question these kind of things. You don't question whether or not, you know, the uh, Wuhan virus, you know, originated in a lab. Do you remember? It wasn't that long ago. It was maybe, you know, a year ago that uh, people were speculating about this or at least asking questions about it. And we were told that is totally off limits. Turns out that, uh, hey, there may be something to it. Thanks, Dr. Fauci, for your emails. By the way, I guess about 10,000 more emails have, uh, have since been obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Don't allow yourself to be cut off from open conversation. Don't allow others to dictate what you can and cannot say. Because at the bottom of that, uh, that uh, you know, enlightened or, um, I'm trying to think of, the, of a better word, the, the, the reasoning, you know, for why we have to, to make sure that your language doesn't stray beyond the boundaries of what we will allow, and of course that's always changing, is someone's trying to control what you think. Or at least get you to second guess what you think. And even if they can get you to hesitate before you say the truth, and one of those things we're going to be talking about a little bit later on in the show, I'll give you an example here. Um, right now there's a big hot-button issue about, uh, about uh, transgender athletes destroying women's sports. Now, I'm not saying that's the hill you have to die on, but a person cannot be honest without incurring risk and wrath, you know, by, by saying, isn't it odd? How, uh, you know, women's collegiate sports, for instance, these transgenders, in other words, men who think they are women or declare themselves women, uh, they have dominated certain aspects of these women's sports. You look at the winner's podium and, hey, look, there's three transgenders there. And, uh, well, there's a couple of biological uh, females that uh, are off to the sides. But we're supposed to pretend like that's normal. That's that's OK. There's there's nothing out of the ordinary. Nope, it's not easy. And there are people who are going to try to be offended about it. Well, you're, you're using hate speech or something like that. I guess we just need the confidence to know, look, it's okay to speak the truth, even if it's unpopular. Because if we don't, we lose our ability to think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, um, it's been interesting watching Dr. Fauci's fall from grace. And, and I, it, it, this is the hard thing for me. There's a part of me that does want to take a gratuitous swipe. Because there's a lot of opportunity here right now. And, uh, and, and frankly, um, I'm not going to say, oh, I, I knew all along that Dr. Fauci was wrong about this or wrong about that. Let's just say I had reason to doubt because it seemed like every pronouncement that he made uh, seemed to favor those in power. And when, when that's the way that things are going, I always am a little bit skeptical. That's, you know, that's just me, but, you know, 
I, I, I have to question when those in power, oh, isn't it, isn't it remarkable that this expert agrees with us? And so it's tempting. I, I want to, you know, I want to get my licks in too, but I don't think that's necessarily the most productive way to go about things. In fact, uh, Barry Brownstein just had an article published, uh, I believe this was yesterday, and he explains that, you know, Fauci shortcomings shouldn't be allowed to blind us to the even bigger shortcoming on the part of the American public. This one, this one's going to sting. But we bought into the idea that we should allow what we see as benevolent experts to rule our lives. And so he's got this great essay called Liberating Yourself from Fauchism. <laughs> okay, here's what he has to say. And I, I, I love this. And I think he's right on the money. Barry Brownstein says the deification of Anthony Fauci is unraveling. But he says it's time to learn a meta lesson. The issue isn't Anthony Fauci's failings. The problem is Fauchism, the fantastical belief that wise and benevolent experts should rule. He says Fauci will fall because of the one blunder that the public will never accept. Evidence is mounting that gain-of-function research in China, possibly funded by Fauci as head of the NIAID, may have led to the pandemic. Worse, for Fauci, he's on record as arguing the benefits of such gain-of-function experiments and resulting knowledge outweigh the risks, including the risk of pandemics. So in coming months, Barry Brownstein says, few will continue to deify Fauci. Fauci's veneer of charm and brilliance will chip away, and the political flip-flopper will be revealed. Increasingly, the public will become aware that Fauci and his apostle politicians used the shield of false science to lie about such issues as herd immunity, the dire need for school closings, and other destructive policies. Michael Brendan Doherty, writing in the National Review, offers two explanations for Fauci's role. Either he purposely manipulated viral narratives and circumstances in order to assert his own authority, or Fauci's just a big-mouthed wannabe out over his skis. Now, Brownstein says, blame and rejection may come Fauci's way, but few will learn the real lesson of why it's wrong to give one person so much power. If Fauciism is to die, the beliefs that give life to Fauciism must be exposed and rejected. And he says, we need to understand why a concentration of power creates errors. All experts given the power to control others are over-their-head, big-mouth wannabes. So from here, he discusses the nature of knowledge, risk, and science. And Brownstein writes, Most fascists have never read Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society. They don't know why the idea of allowing one man to determine policy is absurd. This is from from Hayek. Quote, The knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete, and frequently contradictory knowledge, which all the separate individuals possess, end quote. This is backed up with a quote from philosopher Karl Popper, Our ignorance is sobering and boundless. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Fauchists don't believe that about their beloved leader. Who else should decide, they proclaim, but our most learned expert? Popper continued with what could be a credo for individuals willing to humbly explore their beliefs and admit the limits of individual knowledge. Quote, with each step forward, with each problem we solve, we not only discover new and unsolved problems, 
But we also discover that where we believed we were standing on firm and safe ground, all things are in truth insecure and in a state of flux. End quote. So if the world's full of challenging problems and individuals with boundless ignorance, it's not surprising that Popper believed there are no ultimate sources of knowledge. We can only hope to detect and eliminate error by allowing criticism of the theories of others and our own. To put it more succinctly, physicist Richard Feynman wrote, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Now, of course, in today's world, Faustists are busy censoring views that descend from their beloved leader and his apostles. University of, Pen- of Pennsylvania professor Philip Tetlock has been a skeptic of the ability of expert forecasters who are often mistaken, but never in doubt. Despite the poor track record of forecasters, they never lack followers. Tetlock writes, we need to believe we live in a predictable, controllable world, so we turn to authoritative-sounding people who promise to satisfy that need. Psychologist Paul Slovich is a leading authority on risk. He explains there's no such thing as real risk or objective risk. Like the rest of us, experts suffer from cognitive biases. Thus, Slovich concludes that the public's view of risk should not be trumped by experts with with greater political power. Now, Doherty observed that the public consensus around COVID-19 and the proper or necessary interventions to take against it shifts all the time. Once we understand the nature of knowledge and the subjective nature of risk, how can it be any other way? The problem is that this consensus is filtered and defined by few people, such as Fauci, then translated into rigid rules. Alternative views are then suppressed. Doherty continues, quote, This consensus shapes public policy and leaks out into respectable mainstream news outlets, most insidiously. It becomes encoded as a quasi-official public line that every individual on social media is obliged to repeat and share or else be subject to demonetization, warnings, censorship, and accusations of spreading disinformation. The polarization of our politics and public health elites has left us with two categories of thought on COVID, the science and dangerous, sometimes racist, conspiracy theories. Half the time, these uh, conspiracy theories become the science. Belief in the efficacy of masks or in the lab leak theory made these transitions. But these shifts don't happen upon the publication of credible new scientific studies. There's almost no public jousting and argument among scientists and researchers. There's just a sliding from one position to another when it becomes safe. Long after these shifts take place, CDC guidance often comes to incorporate them. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, Doty illustrated, Doty rather, illust- let me try that again. Doty illustrated what was paramount in Fauci's minds in the early days of the crisis. In a March 2020 uh, briefing by economic advisors to President Trump, Vice President Pence and the Coronavirus Task Force, the severity of the impact of lockdowns on the economy stunned everyone into silence except for Fauci. Fauci immediately turned to Vice President Pence and asked, I'm still in charge, right? In his book, The Wisdom of Crowds, journalist James Surowiecki, echoing Hayek on knowledge, says there's no evidence that one can become an expert in something as broad as decision-making or policy. So for those who believe in decision-making by elite experts, Surowiecki has counterintuitive conclusions, saying if you can assemble a diverse group of people who possess varying degrees of knowledge and insight... 
You're better off entrusting it with major decisions rather than leaving them in the hands of one or two people, no matter how smart these people are. Now, here's where I'm going to put the brakes on for just a moment because we are fast coming up on our spot break here. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I mean, if you if you looked up at Dr. Fauci and you were like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's doing a marvelous job and just doing his best to, to guide our country through difficult times, you know, I guess that could be understandable. It was scary. I remember a year ago when people were still, you know, trying to figure out how deadly is this disease? How contagious is it? What can we do to mitigate it? But there was way too much trust in one person. We're going to come back to Barry Brownstein's article about liberating yourself from fauchism right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an excellent essay from Barry Brownstein. If you have the opportunity, I would recommend subscribe so that you can get his most recent essays right into your email inbox. And yes, I will have a link to his article. From the, It's uh, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. But uh, he, uh, he always has a great take on things. And we're talking right now about liberating yourself from fauchism. That's a coin or a phrase he coined here that uh, is, I think, very appropriate. And it's it's not you know equating Dr. Fauci with you know Nazi ideology or anything like that. It's more a matter of putting too much trust in what we think are benevolent leadership personalities. We we uh, we may elevate them and put them on a pedestal unnecessarily. In his article here, Barry Brownstein talks about medical hierarchies. He says, Dr. Peter Pronovost is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University. In his book, Safe Patients, Smart Hospitals, Pronovost reveals a, a common mindset among physicians and medical professionals and explores why this mindset increases medical errors and compromises patient safety. Pronovost relates, doctors are taught to ignore the crowd and trust their own training and education. Now, referring to Surawiki's book, Pronovost explains that doctors have no use for the wisdom of crowds, nurses, physicians from other, from other specialties, and others. As you read, he says, notice how Prov- Pronovost's mindset is uh, reminiscent of Hayek. Quote, each of the members of a patient's team, including a patient, or including a parent, rather, if the patient is a child, sees problems through a different set of lenses shaped by personal experiences and training. Each of those lenses provide valuable information, information that helps us make wise decisions. Nurses see things differently than doctors. Junior doctors see things differently than senior doctors. Patients see things differently than clinicians. And family members have their own lenses. Now, understanding that knowledge is dispersed leads to to humility, not a desire to make your view supreme. So Pronovost continues, no lens is more accurate than the other. They're just different. Each has a partially incomplete view of a complex puzzle. The fewer the lenses, the more distorted the view. The worse the decision and the greater the risk for preventable harm. A team approach does not detract from the physician's talent, authority, or power. 
It only enhances them by ensuring that he or she makes the best possible decisions. Now contrast the team approach Pronovost describes with the tenet of Faucism, whereby the authority of the leader makes the leader's view supreme. Pronovost relates many tales of white coat supremacy resulting in harm, but who could have imagined a doctor with the power to harm millions? Brownstein writes, tacit knowledge is knowledge gained from experience and wisdom that can be difficult to express. Pronovost explains how guidelines from central authorities like the CDC suppress tacit knowledge. He writes, one of the greatest sources of knowledge in medicine comes from what physicians and nurses learn on the job. This tacit knowledge develops and spreads into a tribal knowledge of techniques at work, and these techniques are soon practiced by a number of physicians and nurses. Now, Pronovost explains that much of this tacit wisdom is not from the published literature, and some of it may not be very effective, but it's one of the ways physicians learn. Pronovost adds there's no existing system for capturing this knowledge and sharing it with the medical world. But Barry Brownstein says today, notice how tacit knowledge is stamped out as physicians developing effective treatments for COVID are ridiculed and censored. If you're not familiar with the name Dr. Scott Atlas, you should probably Google Google that. You'll see a perfect example of this. Yep, he was a contrary voice, but it turns out he was right. And yet he was roundly criticized, ridiculed, marginalized, because he wasn't marching in lockstep with the expert, Anthony Fauci. Brownstein says, Pronovost's work has helped to flatten medical hierarchies and deflate the egos of doctors, resulting in improved medical practices, notably reducing central line infections in intensive care units, resulting in many saved lives. Now, Pronovost has faced challenges as he exposed white coat supremacy, but he never had to contend with vested interests trying to defame him. During the pandemic, brave doctors like Scott Atlas, Martin Koldorf, Sunetra Gupta, and Jay Bhattacharya have been vilified. These doctors have not been willing to, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn say, would say, live by lies. In 1974, when Solzhenitsyn was arrested and exiled to the West, the text of his short essay, Live Not by Lies, was released. And Solzhenitsyn railed against those who complained about the destructive policies of the ruling they, while pretending they themselves were helpless. Here's how Solzhenitsyn put it. We are approaching the brink. Already a universal spiritual demise is upon us. A physical one is about to flare up and engulf us and our children, while we continue to smile sheepishly and babble. But what can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. Now, Barry Brownstein says Solzhenitsyn describes the mindset of helplessness. Quote, we've internalized well the lessons drummed into us by the state. We are forever content and comfortable with its premise. We cannot escape the environment, the social conditions, they shape us. Being determines consciousness. What have we to do with this? We can do nothing. End quote. So, <clears throat> helplessness is a common state of mind today. One may say, well, if vaccine passports become mandatory, what can I do? I must keep my job. Another may say, I'm a family physician with reservations about administering the experimental vaccine to those at low risk for COVID. Yet I must keep my mouth shut or risk censure by the administration of my hospital-owned practice. Solzhenitsyn writes, but we can do everything, even if we comfort and lie to ourselves that this is not so. It is not they who are guilty of everything, but we ourselves, only we. 
Solzhenitsyn shows us the way. He provides a list of ways we can stop passively lying. Even if we're unwilling to risk our jobs, we can understand that authoritarians and totalitarians rule by lies. Through that understanding, we find the most accessible key to our liberation, personal non-participation in lies. Even if all is covered by lies, even if all is under their rule, let us resist in the smallest way. Let their rule hold, not through me. This is one of the things I love most about Solzhenitsyn. And Solzhenitsyn adds, for when people renounce lies, lies simply cease to exist. Like parasites, they can only survive when attached to a person. We're not called to step out into the square and shout out the truth to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We're not ready. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. This can apply to a lot of other areas, right? You can see that. Barry Brownstein says, Our job is infinitely easier than with Solzhenitsyn's. The big lie of Faucism is that rule by benign experts is possible when it is never possible. We must admit the limits of individual knowledge. Authoritarians and totalitarians rule by lies. Their ignorance is as sobering and boundless as ours. Is it too much to ask of Americans that they learn why Faucism is a bankrupt philosophy? Is it too much to ask that they refuse to cooperate anymore in the censorship and canceling of others? In place of helplessness, we can choose not to participate in lies. Let their rule hold, not through me, is the key to our liberation. We can be open and eager for public jousting and arguments from diverse points of view, and if this is, is too much to ask, then Barry Brownstein says we will lose our remaining freedoms. I mean, I've long quoted Solzhenitsyn on the idea that, you know, you may not be able to stop evil, but you can prevent it from entering the world through you. And I think the quote that I've used to that effect comes from this, this very same talk. Let the lie enter the world. Let it prevail, but not through me. Seems we have more power than we think. But we just have to find the courage to, to not go along with it. And it can take a lot of different forms. I know this was one of the hardest things about not masking up at the time when it was, you know, virtually everybody else was masking up. And if I can be honest, you know, one of the places where I felt this most keenly was at church. Going to church and not wearing the mask. And it's not, no one ever angrily confronted me. But I could see the look of concern in people's eyes. Because I wasn't willing to just, you know, I guess in their mind, humble myself and be obedient and do the, you know, Christ-like thing and put a mask on for the sake of everyone else. But the reason I couldn't do it wasn't because I was trying to make my life into a political statement. It goes back to what, uh, what Barry Brownstein's talking about here and what Solzhenitsyn was talking about. The problem was I recognized a lie that I was being urged to participate in. And my conscience would not let me do so. Would it have been easier to just put on the mask and, you know, blend in with the crowd? Oh, it absolutely would have. It would have spared me um, quite a bit of heartache, actually. But it wouldn't have left my conscience at peace. And you know what? These days, that is one of the most important things that I can think of. I'd rather have a peaceful conscience than personal comfort. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got two quick stories to touch on here in this final segment for the hour. You've likely heard about the current uh, labor market shortage and how many people are being incentivized to stay home and collect government checks rather than go and find a job. And there are plenty of places looking for workers. I was uh, looking at an article. This was, I think this was the email I got from the Foundation from economic, for Economic Education yesterday. And it was pointing out that uh, right now, Lyft and Uber are not only costing more, but the wait times are increasing. So a trip that would have cost you, I don't know, 12, 15 bucks is now costing upwards of, uh, you know, 35, 40 dollars. And the wait times are actually getting longer as well. One of the things that I loved about uh, using these ride-sharing services when I've traveled is, you know, what depending on where you are, if you're looking for a ride, it's usually within 5 or 10 minutes tops. 5 minutes probably is about average. I need a ride, boom, I just hit the app and somebody's there. Now it's more like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Why would that be? I mean, it's a good system. It's a system that works well. And the answer is because they have a shortage of drivers. Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education has an excellent article about the labor market shortage and how it's exposing two big ways the government hurts teenagers. thought I'd just share a couple of things with you here from her article. She says, my 14-year-old daughter walked over to a nearby floral shop earlier this week to see if she could work there part-time this summer. The florist had posted recently on social media that he was hiring. So with her resume in hand and spring classes over, my daughter told the shopkeeper she could start as soon as possible. Now, the florist said he would love to hire her, but when he employed a 14-year-old a couple of years ago, he got in trouble with the city. Apparently, workers under 16 aren't allowed to use sharp scissors here. Come back in two years and I'll definitely hire you, he enthusiastically told Carrie's daughter. So the girl walked home disappointed about the job, dismayed at the foolishness of child labor laws that prevent teenagers from gaining important workplace skills and experience. Now, Carrie says, fortunately, the current labor market shortage triggered by the government's pandemic response may be a boon for teenagers. The New York Times reported on Sunday for American teenagers looking for work. This may be the best summer in years. As companies try to go from hardly staffed to fully staffed practically overnight, teenagers appear to be winning out more than any other demographic group. More older teenagers are working this spring than at any time since the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, helping to slow a decades-long downward trend in teen employment. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, teen labor force participation plummeted from a high of 57.9% in 1979 to just 34.1% in 2011. Part of this decline is related to more emphasis on academics, extracurricular activities, and other structured programming for adolescents. But public policy can also be to blame. Minimum wage laws, for instance, disproportionately harm teenagers. Kerry says rising minimum wage laws have been enacted in numerous cities and states in recent years, creating an artificial price floor on entry-level labor that often prevents teenagers from getting their foot in the door. 
As the price of labor increases due to government-imposed minimum wages, employers often cut back on the number of employees they hire, turn to automation, or just go out of business entirely. That limits the entry-level jobs available to teenagers and other low-skilled workers and creates barriers for workers seeking to gain job experience. Teenagers with no work background may simply not be worth the established minimum wage. And she says many, like her daughter, would be happy to work for lower wages to gain valuable skills. As renowned economist Thomas Sowell writes in his book, Basic Economics, quote, making it illegal to pay less than a given amount does not make a worker's productivity worth that amount. And if it is not, that worker is unlikely to be employed. Yet minimum wage laws are almost always discussed politically in terms of the benefits they confer on workers receiving those wages. Unfortunately, the real minimum wage is always zero, regardless of the laws, and that's the wage that many workers receive in the wake of the creation or escalation of a government-mandated minimum wage, because they either lose their jobs or fail to find jobs when they enter the labor force. End quote. Now, according to a July 2018 report by the Congressional Budget Office regarding a proposed $15 minimum wage, teenagers are disproportionately harmed by increasing the minimum wage. That $15 option would alter employment for some groups more than others. Almost 50% of the newly jobless workers in a given week, 600,000 of 1.3 million, would be teenagers. Now, the Biden administration's been pushing to raise the federal minimum wage to $15, but has met congressional resistance. In late April, however, the president signed an executive order to raise the federal minimum wage for contractors to $15 an hour. Also, child labor laws prevent teens from working. Minimum wage laws, along with child labor laws, emerged in 1938 when the U.S. passed the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA. Kerry writes, because of this legislation, the government is often credited with improving working conditions. But as fees Anthony Davies and James Harrigan explain, markets, not the government, were responsible for raising worker wages and reducing child labor. The Industrial Revolution and the economic growth and prosperity it created enabled parents to support their children on their own rather than relying on a child's wages. She writes, according to the Economic History Association, most economic historians conclude that this legislation was not the primary reason for the reduction and virtual elimination of child labor between 1880 and 1940. Instead, they point out that industrialization and economic growth brought rising incomes, which allowed parents the luxury of keeping their children out of the workforce. Now, child labor laws may have expanded in many states over the past several decades, And while perhaps well-intentioned, these laws infantilize teenagers by creating numerous unjustifiable barriers to work. For instance, in Massachusetts, where Carrie lives, child labor laws prevent teen workers under age 16 from operating a microwave oven or working at an amusement park and watch out for those scissors, like her daughter found out. The current labor market shortage brought about by supplemental unemployment benefits and government-issued stimulus checks over the past year that incentivized individuals not to work may be helping to loosen some of the arbitrary child labor restrictions for younger teens. Carey says, according to the New York Times, city officials in Henderson, Kentucky, were so desperate for lifeguards to staff their public pool that they lowered the minimum applicant age from 16 to 15 and raised the starting pay from 8.50 to 10 dollars an hour. 
The result? More teenagers, more teenagers applied, and the city has started interviewing candidates for the open positions. So now is an ideal time for teenagers to apply for a summer job. Employers are raising entry-level wages. They're offering applicants incentives, even signing bonuses. Some McDonald's franchises, for instance, are reportedly offering free iPhones to new hires and 50 bucks just to come in for an interview. Kerry says the tight labor market means that teenagers are sought after and will have an opportunity to take on more responsibilities and learn new skills. On the edge of adulthood, adolescents are too often coddled and controlled. Public policy like minimum wage laws and restrictive child labor statutes makes it difficult for teenagers to exercise personal agency and self-reliance and can prevent them from acquiring competencies that will help in whatever career path they ultimately choose. The government response to the coronavirus has created an opening for teenagers to seize a prime moment of early job training and development. And Carrie says, as for my daughter, she'll continue to run her own baking business until she's old enough to use scissors. What a great lesson. (laughs) By the way, with a teenager who's applying for work right now, this is something that we've been contending with as well. I'll have a link to Carrie's article in the show notes, which you'll find at the com. Only a minute or so left here, but I wanted to, to just touch on the latest hot-button issue for our culture warriors, and that is pushing back against those who maintain that transgender athletes are destroying women's sports. The headlines uh, the, just a couple of days ago talked about, on the first day of Pride Month, by which they mean June, Governor DeSantis in Florida signs a bill outlawing transgender athletes participating in sports. And I'm going to translate that. He signed a bill mandating that uh, men are not going to be allowed to participate in women's sports. We're talking collegiate and high school sports. There's a great essay that I'm going to link in the show notes here. It's from Walter Block, who suggests a solution to this that should be obvious to anyone who isn't running on pure ideology. No one is saying that these trans athletes have no right to compete. But if they're going to compete, why not let them compete in their own competitions? In other words, um, you know, you've heard of the Paralympics, right? Nobody bats an eye at, you know, these Paralympic athletes who play basketball from wheelchairs, etc. Why can't uh, why can't transgender athletes have something similar? Their own competitions. It seems like that would be a much more level playing field. You'll find it in the show notes. Please check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.